We'll be reading from 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. I strongly encourage you to look it up, page 262 in your pew Bible, and follow along. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there was valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field. But we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. 
strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you, Nathan. The long passages like that make me thankful that we get other people to read the scripture. Thanks for doing that. Um, as we continue our uh, look into the life of David, just think about uh, a story I heard Tim Keller say where he uh, watched a therapist in his city change her advertising strategy. He said, uh, starting out, she used to advertise with uh, an advertiser that said, I want to help people change. And then uh, as time went on, she changed her strategy to say, how do I deal with difficult relationships? And he said the change was subtle, but look what happened. At first, the question was, how do I deal with the problem that's within me? How do I change? Two, how do I put the problem out there? Relationships are difficult and meet people in that. And he said, that is where we are, that we tend to want to plant the problem out there and not in here. And as we've been following the life of David through First and Second Samuel, uh, this is the beginning of the downturn of his kingship. From here on out, from the writer's perspective, it's pretty much a tragedy. And there's so many places we've already seen that King David demonstrates for us the kind of king that can bring a secure life to you. But this is the beginning of the downturn because what we see is that sin is, it's not just out there. It's actually in here. It's in King David. It's in me. It's in you. And so as we get this window into the heart of David, it's going to reveal two things. First, it's going to reveal the, de- the deception and the power of sin and how it works, not just in David, but in us. But also, it's going to reveal that really a truly secure life can only be found in a sinless and righteous king who isn't David. Uh, It's Jesus. So three things to kind of frame up this dark and really sad passage. First, the setting. And then we're going to look at the spiral. And then we're going to look at the the displeasure. All right, first, the setting. Here's what I mean by setting. Where do we find King David in the grand story of his life? Because if, the, if these events are the beginning of his downturn, like what's going on with him? Because Pastor Eugene Peterson points this out. I think it's interesting because even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, which is awesome if you're here, you might know two names that typically get equated with David, Goliath and Bathsheba. Those are the two names that if somebody thinks about David, those get equated with him. And think about those two names. Because first, David encounters Goliath all the way back in 1 Samuel 17, all the way to the back of our, uh, beginning of our series. David was a young teenage shepherd boy who has been overlooked by his family because he's just the runt. So when Samuel shows up to anoint for king, he, he doesn't even show up. In most people's eyes, David doesn't matter. And as he approaches this giant, little giant of a man, Goliath, with a sling, it looks silly. He's weak. But when you hear the name Bathsheba, where is David now? In 2 Samuel 11, he's not overlooked anymore. He matters in everybody's eyes. He's not this young, immature shepherd boy. He is, he's uber popular. 
He is the powerful and confident king who has defeated and crushed enemies. He's been a loyal friend. He's gracious. He has been walking with and loving and trusting the Lord for 20 plus years when he encounters Bathsheba. So when you hear those two scenarios, honestly, which of those settings do you think would bring David's downfall? Is David more likely to fail as a young, immature, nothing shepherd boy at the beginning of his life trying to trust the Lord, encountering a massive giant? Or is he more likely to fail as an older, mature, demonstrated, faithful, well-seasoned father of the Lord who encounters a beautiful and righteous woman? And I think you know where I'm going, right? It's here. It's at the pinnacle of David's kingship the kind of prime of his life, when he's reached all of his goals, it's right here that everything comes unhinged. How? Like, why? A friend of mine talks about another one of his friends who, um, after 41 years of sobriety from alcohol, he still shows up at an AA meeting almost every week. And my friend asked him, he said, like, why are you still going? And he said this, well, Yes, I've been sober, but I know within my heart, I'm only 15 minutes away from being plastered again. That is self-awareness. Of course, there's growth in this. Of course, there's improvement. But he's saying, I know that there's a distrust I should have of myself. And see, I would suggest this is the point of of this uh, setting. Is there so many linguistic cues going on in this? We'll talk about it. But I don't know if you noticed it, as Nathan read this long chapter, the name of God never appears until the very end. And that's telling you something. It's hinting at something. Why is this the place of David's failure when everything is going well and he's an unmitigated success in everybody's eyes? Why is he in danger now? Because to quote Eugene Peterson, David has gotten bigger and God has gotten smaller. David has stepped front and center And God has receded into the background. The less David is paying attention to the Lord, the more he begins to act as if he himself is God. And that's the danger of success and everything going well. Young David was deeply aware of his weakness, deeply aware of his immaturity, deeply aware of his need of the Lord. Old, faithful, well-seasoned David is starting to function as if he's independent of the Lord, as if he doesn't need him. And this is the upside down nature of the Christian life. My question is, are you embracing it? Are you embracing the fact that when you are most confident in yourself, I mean in yourself, you actually are the most vulnerable. It's the areas of your life that you look at and think, well, if that person would just kind of be more like me in that area, the world would be a better place. You never say that, you think that, That's the area that you're vulnerable. Not because real growth and maturity can't happen. Of course it happens. But the way growth and maturity happens is dependence on him in those areas, not independent of him. And we tend to, in the places of success, choose independence. And so it's actually healthy to have a distrust of yourself a little bit. So that's the setting. Second of all, there's this spiral. And the reason the whole text was read is because I wanted you to sense and to feel what happens to David. And we're just going to kind of run through it. But we got to ask, if this is the turning point of David, if the rest is a tragedy, how did the spiral begin? Because it's going to give a window into our own heart. 
And David's destructive choices, his sin, it starts so slow. It starts so subtle, which is how sin usually works. Rarely does someone wake up in the morning and out of nowhere just say, I think I'm going to do something wicked today. Usually we get to those places by a thousand many choices. And so at the beginning in verse one and two, it's actually really subtle, right? It's springtime, so the rain and cold have stopped. So now this is when kings go out to battle enemies and read between the lines of what the author is telling you, David should be out there fighting, but he stays back. He just kind of decides, I think I've done enough. Now's not my time. I'm going to sit back. Most people in the kingdom probably didn't even think anything of it. But this is the beginning. To use a theological term, sins of omission, not doing what I'm supposed to do, usually precede sins of commission, doing something I'm not supposed to do. And that's the start. He's just not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And then he gets up and he walks onto a roof and he sees a woman bathing. And let's get this straight. Bathsheba's doing nothing wrong. She's a righteous woman. She's actually doing something righteous. She's following Levitical law. The reason she's on her roof bathing is because that's what you did in those days. If you wanted hot water, you put it on the roof, expose it to the sun. And so she is bathing as is the normal practice. And, and David walks out. Because in those days, the roof of the king was higher than any other roof. Why? So that a king could look out on his kingdom so as to serve, so as to protect. But now we see David as a king walk out onto his roof and he sees not to serve and to protect, but he sees to serve his self-interest. And that's where sin begins. And when we start reducing life simply to my interests and my desires, the ball has started rolling. And so he sends out to inquire. And the report comes back, this is Uriah's wife, this is Bathsheba. And this is what I want you to see. Again, I told you there's a ton of linguistic hints in here. The only time that the name of Bathsheba is mentioned is when his servants bring her name back. Every other time Bathsheba is simply referred to as woman or her or she. Why? Because what David has done is he has reduced her, a woman made in God's image, he's reduced her to something he can possess. Someone that's supposed to be served, protected, respected, now it's something to get. And that's one definition of lust, which both guys and girls struggle with, by the way. Don't believe lies, it's only guys. Lust is when you love to get. Love is when you love to give. Love is other-centered. And see, I just want, like, it, it could have stopped here. I want you to feel this. The answer for David to right here was actually to see Bathsheba as the way that the Lord sees her, a person made in his image, worthy of respect and care. Author Sheila Gregory, she's when we points this out. The key to defeating lust is not to avoid encounters with other people or to like, Shield your eyes. The key to defeating lust is to see women or to see men as they are, made in God's image, sons and daughters of Christ, worthy of honor and respect, a person to be prayed for and served and have compassion towards, never to be used. And so, but anytime we start not seeing people as people, but as objects, 
then all kinds of destruction comes out, right? If I can reduce someone in a car to simply a nameless, annoying driver, all kinds of things can come out of my mouth. Or Or this person that works with me, if it's not a person, but just a frustrating coworker, it opens the door to all kinds of destructive stuff. And it could have stopped. It could have stopped if he had just repented and seen her as, as, as the Lord sees her. But instead, what you actually get is echoes of the Garden of Eden. If you remember from a, a semester ago, he looks, I mean, he saw, he takes, and he gets. It's what happens back in the garden. Eve sees, takes, and eats. It's all echoes of that. And so David sends for her, brings her back to the house. She reports, uh, he lays with her. She reports that she's pregnant. Again, it could have stopped there. But the spiral continues. And this is what I want, want you to watch from here. David's number one goal from this point on when, she, when he finds out she's pregnant is to not get caught. That is his number one goal. And so the cover-up begins. Here's the principle I want you to think about with David's life. And this comes from Brian Salter. When our chief goal is to avoid being caught rather than to enjoy forgiveness, we will do anything. Okay? When our chief goal is to avoid being caught rather than enjoy forgiveness, we will do anything. And David does. He brings Uriah home from battle. Uh, Uriah, you'll find out a couple weeks, is one of David's best friends. He's, his, he's one of his mighty men. He has sacrificed everything for David. He brings him back, feigns interest in the battle, tells Uriah to go have a feast because he hopes that Uriah will go sleep with his wife so that, right, so that now people will, spake, will mistake the son for, this child for Uriah's. It'll cover it up. But Uriah is so faithful, he refuses to do that while his friends are out at battle, which is what David should have been doing, right? And David could have stopped there, but then he gets Uriah drunk to hope to achieve his goal because he want, he, David does not want to get caught. Rather, rather than enjoy forgiveness, David does not want to get caught. And then what you have, the text wants you to feel this, a drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David at this point. This is how bad it's gotten. So then David sends Uriah back with a letter that is sentencing Uriah to death. He knows Uriah is so honorable that Uriah won't look at the letter. And so David ends up essentially murdering Uriah and a bunch of other people because of this little uh, tactic he comes up with. And by the end, David marries Bathsheba, which I'm convinced is one more way he's trying to cover it up by doing something good. And the passage ends. And it's really supposed to make you ask, what in the world happened to David? Like so much darkness, so much destruction, so much evil. And it just started with David staying home from battle and then refusing to see a woman as a fellow image bearer. And he stewards his power in evil ways. By the end of the chapter, you end up with people murdered and Bathsheba pregnant with a, and I use this correctly, a bastard child. And you're like, what happened? It all began with self-interest. All began with viewing himself as God independent of him and God receding into the background. And at every turn, he refuses to repent. He refuses to enjoy forgiveness and keeps choosing, I don't want to be caught. And the name of the Lord is hauntingly absent, demonstrating that. I think you probably still remember Lance Armstrong and his story, uh, right? The greatest American cyclist, probably the world's cyclist. And if you ever watch one of his documentaries or his books, right? He starts talking about what it was like when... uh, 
when his life kind of came apart for cheating because he lets you in on the tension. He says, on the one hand, he is seen as this cancer-defeating hero, riding with an American flag, bringing all these new victories, and on the other, on the, the dark underbelly was he was cheating. And, it, and in a moment, honestly, he said, what happens is it just got going, and I couldn't stop it, and I lost myself in all of it. That's what begins to happen as we move to the forefront and God moves to the back, to the, to the, proceeds to the background. So what are some takeaways from this spiral that we're forced to watch? I just want to give you two. First of all, all of us, and I'm putting myself in there, are capable of heinous sin. And it's actually wise to realize that. Do you realize you really are capable of awful things? Like this is David, who wrote half the Bible who like really did demonstrate what God is like in his love for Mephibosheth, really was a loyal friend, really is like a man after God's own heart. And in one chapter, he covets, murders, commits adultery and lies, half the Ten Commandments explicitly broken. And I say that to, not to like be a downer, but to say, unless you realize it about yourself, you either are going to be naive and blind or hopelessly confused. Because what the Bible clearly teaches about the sinfulness of humanity is even if you follow Jesus, there's still that reality in you and that seed in you can produce all kinds of sin. The seeds are there. It's just an acorn form. But if it gets nourished, if it gets the right weather, it can, it can explode. Right? The seed of jealousy, just saying, I want what you have, if it keeps being watered, and in the right, right weather, it'll grow into anger and hatred, and it could even lead to murder. The seed of self-pity that we all have, right? If that gets watered and nurtured without repentance, that grows into bitterness and arrogance and isolation from people and leads to all kinds of destructive stuff. It's there. The seeds are there. Will you see it? And second of all, what that means is there is always a chance to repent, there's always the chance to enjoy being forgiven rather than simply try not to be caught. And I know when you watch it in David and when we watch it in other people, it seems so obvious. David, it could have ended a long time ago. You could have enjoyed being forgiven and so much damage would have been stopped. Just, just go to God, go to Jesus and go to others honestly and enjoy being forgiven. But what sin does is it deceives and what sin deceives about is, 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 is the way to life. Sin, sin makes it feel like repentance and trusting the Lord and, be, and confessing will feel like death and covering your, up yourself will feel like life. But that's the reverse. Confession and repentance always leads to the good life and covering will lead to destruction, but sin reverses the, the feeling. And so the question really is, it's not... It's not, will you and I sin? Yes, we will. The que Until Jesus returns, there will be no perfection. The question is, when you sin, what do you do? Will you recognize it in turn or will you be deceived? All David had to do was to admit at the beginning, expose himself to God and to his mercy. And when, and when it called for it, expose himself to other people. But at every point, at every point, what seemed foolish to David was to stop and receive forgiveness and instead, he kept trying to handle it himself. He kept trying to control consequences and cover it up because that is how sin works. The way back to life is going to feel like death. 
And so look, it, it always starts small. It's just a little jealousy. A little jealousy because he or she gets the attention that I want. And if I just stop there, confess that to the Lord, receive his attention, which is what matters, receive his forgiveness, it can stop. But we don't. That'd be uncomfortable to admit that. So then what happens? It nourishes, it grows. And now that person that I'm jealous of starts driving me crazy. And so then I start telling other people about it. Right? Did you see what he did? Did you hear what she said? Inviting others in to be against her. And it could stop there. See that person as a whole person. Repent, enjoy God's forgiveness. But we don't. That would feel like death to have to tell other people. Right? So we cover. And what's funny is a lot of times we cover with spiritual stuff. I just start doing Bible studies. Not that I'm pro-Bible study, but that's not as good as repentance. Right? And it gets harder and harder to confess and repent. Uh, my wife Liza told me one time about somebody she knew that, um, I think it was in college or a few years after college, she, she got tired of uh, how much she was gossiping about people. And so she made a pact with a friend that whenever she gossiped about somebody, and she realized that she had to call that person and tell, tell, her what they said, tell her what she said and ask for forgiveness. She said it took about two times before she quit gossiping. Right? I, I, I would never do that. <laughs> but that is looking at, at, at the destructiveness and saying, this needs to stop where it is. Look, because the message of the Bible is growing as a Christian is not, that you ju- is, it's not just somebody that sins less is somebody that repents faster and quicker. Yes, there's real growth, but it's going to look like quick repentance. And so lastly, you have the setting, you see the spiral, but look at the displeasure. And I want to be quick towards the end here. Look, again, God's name is absent throughout 26 verses, and you start getting the impression that David's going to get away with it. Where is God? Right? He murders, he commits adultery, there's a, there's a child, he marries her. It looks like it's worked. But then there's this final thing that says what David did displeased the Lord. And there's the final warning about the spiral of sin. It's just because God is silent does not mean that he's absent. It does not mean that he does not see what's going on in our life. Do not confuse his silence with a lack of care. He sees it. And look, some of us need to hear this. Like if you're in college, again, I used to do college ministry not that long ago. Right, a common refrain, I get it, is I will change when I get out of college. Because right now, things are going okay. Right, if there's things in your life that you realize need to change, but, but that'll happen when I get out of here, realize what you're saying is things are going okay right now. There's no need for change. I'm telling you, do not confuse God's silence with his absence. He sees it. He knows what's going on. It might be at a time in your life where, you know, there's patterns in your life involving greed or fudging numbers or stepping on people to rise in life. And it's so natural and nobody sees it and nobody cares. And your life is going great. And I'm telling you, don't confuse God's silence with his absence. He sees it. And his eyes are the only one that matters. He sees it all. And so that's where the chapter ends. David, the man after God's own heart, does incredible evil. And so I'll just end with this. Where do you see yourself in this story? Because as long as this story is simply a portrait of somebody else's life out there, you will actually miss the good news. 
But if you will let it reveal your heart and reveal the ways that we are confident in ourselves, it'll actually show that you need a God of mercy. And that is a great place to be. Because think about it. What does David deserve for, for what he did with his power? He deserves to be exposed. He deserves to be stripped of his power. He probably deserves to be spit upon, beaten, and killed. We fast forward to the New Testament, and Matthew begins his, his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. Do you know who's in the genealogy? It says, a son of David by the wife of Uriah. It wants you to know. Now, why did God choose Bathsheba for Jesus to come through the lineage? David had all these other wives, which is another conversation, right? Why Bathsheba? Why the place of David's greatest failure? Because God is someone who identifies with, with sinners. Jesus is someone who identifies with failures. And so God the Father sends Jesus to be a pure and righteous king. Utterly pure. Never uses his power to manipulate or to always uses his power to bless, uh, to protect. And you know, towards the end of Jesus' life, what happens to him? He's exposed. He's spit upon. He's stripped of his power and hung on a cross and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the wrath of God goes on, on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is letting himself be covered with David's sin and my sin in your sin. Jesus is providing the cover to remove sin and shame and guilt. It's in him. See, David is like us. When our chief goal is to avoid being caught rather than to, to enjoy being forgiven, we'll do anything to cover up. And here's what I want to tell you. That feeling of needing to cover up, that's not wrong. You just need to go to the right place for cover. You need to go to Jesus. You need to look away from self to the one who went to the cross and was laughed at and spit upon in your place. Yes, he is the one who sees you fully and is displeased and the cause to go to him. Ironically, what that means is if you feel exposed this morning, you're actually in a good place. You're actually in a healthy place because you can now receive the full covering of Jesus and his death you can be covered by the only thing that heals, which is Jesus, and then his spirit in you. Look, one of my friends, and I'll, I'll close it by this, he, he talks about in his life where he looks back and he realizes his worst days as a kid is when he did something dumb or wrong and he knew it. And his first thought was, oh, shoot, I messed up. I can't let my dad find out or he's going to be so mad. He said, those were his worst days. Because he spent those days trying to cover and manipulate. He said, my best days are when I did something dumb and I messed up and I thought, oh man, I've blown it. I really need to call my dad. See, it's different. And those days that he knew my dad is for me and love me, loves me and I can go to him, totally different. This is the offer of Jesus. Yes, he sees it. But he's one who loves to forgive. He's one who loves to provide cover. And so if your instinct is, shoot, I messed up. I need to fix this. You will continue on the spiral. But if your instinct is, shoot, I messed up. I need Jesus. I need to run to him. Yes, that is covering. That is life. That is forgiveness. And the offer is real this morning. Let's pray.
Father, um, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to be the cover uh, that we cannot produce for ourselves. And so, Lord, there's um, some of us who are uh, just still trying not to be caught rather than to enjoy being forgiven. Would you bring about that work that only you can uh, to come to Jesus, to come to others, and receive the joy of forgiveness. In your son's name I pray. Amen.